Support for the following podcast comes from Hope Made Strong's training, Trauma-Informed Care for the Faith Community. This is a training for church leaders that introduces how to build a safe, healthy, and trauma-informed church community. For just $5, join the training, download the toolkit, and have access to a resource library offering dozens of books, online resources, and media links. The live training is on February 24th, but the replay and resources will remain accessible. Go to hopemadestrong.org slash trauma-informed for more information. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. On the show today, we're going to be talking all about de-escalating a mental health crisis and how with just a few basic skills and strategies, you'll be able to support a person who is in crisis while maintaining good rapport. I've had this conversation about how to support someone through a crisis or approaching a crisis with a few churches in my consulting work. And it also has come up recently in the Caring Church Community Facebook group that I host. So I know this must be something that a lot of people are looking for right now. How to offer support to someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis within your group, service, or church. To help guide you through the skills and strategies I'm going to talk about on the show, I've created a cheat sheet with the four steps of crisis behavior for you to use as a help or a guide to de-escalate someone. And you can download this cheat sheet in the show notes at hopemadestrong.org slash episode 24. I want to start by recognizing that when I'm referring to a mental health crisis, this is a subjective term. For one person, this could be suicidality, and for another, this could be struggling to cope or having a panic attack. I want to validate both experiences. A mental health crisis for one person can look completely different from another. So I would caution people to have a policy that outlines what a mental health crisis looks like, as it may look very different from one person to the next. And because of this, I'm going to talk about strategies that can be used for anyone who may be experiencing some type of challenge, or the clinical term that we could use would be emotional dysregulation. This can look like anything, from someone who quietly walks out of your small group to a person who is loud and causing a disturbance. These skills can be used for both circumstances. It's also helpful to approach these situations and topic with compassion, recognizing that we have likely all been emotionally dysregulated in public before. It doesn't matter if it was frustration at lineups, traffic, or anger at a belligerent person, or over feeling overcome with grief or fear. Experiencing a crisis can be, and being seen at our worst in public is an awful feeling that most of us can empathize with. The person who's overwhelmed or having an outburst is a child of God. They're a neighbor, sister, father, coworker, and friend. No variance of ability, cognitive abnormality, or behavioral choice will change that they are precious to God. And so our response to that person ought to be one of compassion 
and of respect. If we are the leader of a group or we're the neighbor sitting beside someone who is deteriorating, it can feel like we are helpless, out of control, or to be honest, it can be scary at times if the person is loud, acting strange, or verbalizing threats to themselves or to others. But it is possible to care for that person while at the same time recognizing that safety is priority. I've been in situations where a person was apprehended by police and hospitalized against their will. But because of the compassion and respect offered in that crisis moment, the relationship was maintained. And I want to pause on the concept of safety for a minute. While I provide skills and strategies to care for and de-escalate someone who is in crisis, the safety of the person, yourself as the helper, and bystanders is the priority. If you feel that someone might get hurt, either because of suicidal behavior or they're aggressive to you or bystanders are in harm's way, the need to keep people safe trumps the need to maintain the relationship. And we will walk through these circumstances later on. As I mentioned before, as a leader, care provider, if someone is experiencing a crisis, it can invoke a lot of emotions within you. It can make you nervous, hesitant because you don't want to make things worse, or you're unsure of what you should do to help. Do you leave the large group and go after the individual struggling? Or what do you even say when you find them? It can be overwhelming. Not only are you balancing the responsibilities of others, but how do you manage the high needs of this one individual? And if you had a negative experience in the past, this could be very triggering for you as well. Your instinct might be to react or to be protective, causing you to overreact, escalating the situation, or act in a punitive nature, causing harm to the relationship, sending the message that you and and your church are not a safe place. It's important to recognize that as caregivers, we're humans too, and a crisis response from someone else can evoke a response in us. This is why having emotional intelligence as a caregiver and as a leader is so, so important. Having awareness of our own emotions and how we are triggered so that we have the ability to handle these high-risk interpersonal situations. Without strong emotional intelligence, it can be tempting to try to control the situation. You could ask a lot of questions to try to understand what's going on and to solve the problem, but that's satisfying your own needs rather than focusing on the needs of the other person. So I want to introduce a concept called Flipping Your Lid by Dan Siegel. This is a simplified explanation that I borrow to describe what happens in the brain when people experience stress. It's a simple way to learn about what happens when we feel emotionally and physically threatened. And I think this will be really helpful as it provides context in which we'll discuss our support skills later on. If you hold up your fist with your thumb tucked under your fingers, it's a visualization of the brain. Now, this is kind of hard to to demonstrate in a podcast. But in the show notes, I'll link to the YouTube video and vlog where I talk more about this. With your fist held up, the front of your fingers are the prefrontal cortex or the logic center of your brain, like the front part of your brain, right at your forehead. The back of your hand or wrist is the brain stem or the area that is in charge of all the automatic nervous system functionings like breathing and heart rate. Your thumb that's tucked right under your fist is called the amygdala. This is the part of the brain that senses danger and alerts the rest of the brain and triggers that fight, flight, freeze, and fawn response. Now, normally the front center is in charge. That's the logic center. It processes, analyzes, and assesses. This part of the brain is actually 
really not fully developed until you're in your 20s. So if you are wondering why your teenager are making ridiculous decisions, well, there you have it. The front logic center of their brain is not fully formed anywhere between your 20 to 25 years old. Now, the job of the amygdala is to sense danger. And if it feels threatened, and it, then it takes over and you flip your lid. You open up your fist and exposing your thumb, the amygdala. You're no longer operating primarily out of your logic center, but with the amygdala and your fight, flight, and freeze and fawn mode are fully engaged. This happens to everyone. The person experiencing a crisis, you, your neighbor, your kids, your parents, everyone. Those who have flipped their lid are often responding with a lot of emotions and you're having a physical response. The amygdala, it's sending signals for your heart to pump hard and fast and to prepare your muscles for action and be alert watching for threats. This is 100% how our bodies were designed to work. If we were experiencing a real threat, like being chased or even being cut off on the highway, we would need to be alert, hyper aware, ready for action. But our bodies don't distinguish between a real or imagined threat. The responses that people have to stress and crisis differ, but generally they are categorized into four types. Fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. The fight response is designed to defend ourselves from danger. The flight response uses that extra energy made available to escape the traumatic experience, and there is a strong urge to get out of the room or leave the situation. Freeze, that's a survival reaction where our body is temporarily immobilized or numb. Muscles can be tight, ready for action, but you can feel paralyzed. A common description is a feeling of overwhelm, being flooded with stimulus, but frozen, not knowing what to do. And the fawn response or submit response is lesser known. This response happens when survival depends on placating or appealing to the aggressor. For example, in hostage situations, childhood abuse, sexual trauma, or domestic abuse. And if you think back to crisis situations and circumstances in the past, I am sure that you can think of some examples of how people had these four types of responses. And I'm sharing this because as stated at the beginning, not everyone will exhibit a crisis the same way, but overall people respond similarly in these four ways, but they also follow the four different stages of escalating behavior. Now I need to have a disclaimer here and say that the knowledge I'm sharing is coming from working with people for the past 15 years who experience mental health crisis, as well as the many trainings I've attended. And I feel confident in the information I'm sharing, but I am not an expert trainer in how high-risk, violent crisis situations. If you're wanting to create policies and procedures around crisis issues such as domestic violence, child abuse, suicidality, or weapons threats, I would recommend connecting with a specialist, and I will link to a few resources in the show notes. A comprehensive organizational policy for crisis prevention would also consider prevention strategies, intervention practice, and postvention pathways. But for the purpose of the podcast, the four stages of crisis behavior that I'm going to share are is a high-level overview of prevention, intervention, and postvention. And while it offers a great place to start in creating policy and procedures, it's not comprehensive enough. And so with that, let's go through the four stages of crisis behavior and de-escalation strategies. And for these four stages, I created a downloadable reference sheet that you can find in the show notes. 
Once you learn these stages, you're going to begin to see them everywhere. The frustrated customer, the angry neighbor, the exhausted parent. These stages of crisis show how human emotions escalate and how we can support and help de-escalate them. The first stage is agitation, and agitation is seen as a noticeable change in the person's behavior. The signs and symptoms will be familiar because they're virtually the same symptoms that we discuss with flipping your lid. People's body language changes. Just like the fight response, voices can grow louder or start talking fast. People's face may be red, sweating, Hands and legs are restless, and people may feel the need to move around and pace. But also, people can avoid eye contact or even isolate themselves from a group, like the flight response. These are the first signs that someone is not doing well. Ideally, intervention at this stage will prevent further escalation. And you can help de-escalating by first knowing those in your community and being able to identify when there's a change of behavior. Secondly, you can let the person know that you care and offer support using those strong active listening skills. Thirdly, you can help them find ways to help manage the stress they are experiencing. These activities don't have to be complicated. They can be as simple as listening to music, walking, reading, doing puzzles, watching comedy, or talking it through. In the moment of crisis, the goal is to allow time for the body to calm and to re-engage that logic center and to de-escalate the moment. This is not the time to counsel or to problem solve because that often agitates the person further. If the person's not able to de-escalate, they can move into the second stage, which is called combative. In the combative stage, the individual may lose complete rationale, and they can be belligerent and often challenge authority. When they're in this stage, it's helpful to give them time and space to vent. They're releasing energy, and it's better to allow them to release their frustrations by venting than contain it, because that will escalate to a physical reaction. If possible, you need to remove the audience or anything that might provoke them further. Setting limits in this stage is also really important. Although allowing people to blow off some steam is beneficial, by setting limits and giving people options of what they can do to control their behavior, you identify what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. You are clearly communicating the consequences of their behavior using simple language and short sentences. If the person's unable to calm in this stage, they may advance to the next stage, which is aggression. In this stage, you will see a total loss of rational control and people become physically violent to either property or to people. It's really important that you do not physically intervene, but call emergency services, ensuring that you and other bystanders, if they're not able to be removed, remain safe is the absolute number one priority. The fourth stage is de-escalation. In this stage, people begin to regain rational control and are able to discuss the issue. They verbalize or show signs of remorse for their actions, and they're often really embarrassed. Because of the huge amount of emotional and physical energy just released, people are often tired and lethargic. As supporters, we have a great opportunity to offer compassion and build trust. By first offering the person grace, you as a supporter build trust that will allow you to have the opportunity to discuss and reflect at a more appropriate time, not right now, but later. 
Crisis can occur anywhere, in a support session, in the classroom, in a meeting, or an event, or a small group. The ideal situation is that you'll be able to recognize when someone is not doing well or has flipped their lid. It is then that you can de-escalate them, preventing a crisis by using active listening skills and validation. And I actually go into detail about these skills back in episode 10, where we talked about what to say when you don't know what to say. Today's show was a full one. We normalized a crisis response. I shared how important it is to respond with compassion and respect. We talked about what happens biologically when we're facing a crisis and using the analogy of flipping your lid. And I outlined four stress responses, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, and then walked you through the four stages of crisis behavior and offered some de-escalation ideas. I really appreciate you listening today, and I hope that you have found this helpful. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action today. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church? Don't forget to grab that free download at hopemadestrong.org slash episode 24. And if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for connecting. Take care.